oral questions by members. Official opposition leader. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's been almost two years since the doors of this legislature were swarmed by protesters. Now tensions at the coastal gas link construction site in northern BC are heating up again. More than 500 workers, including Wet'suwet'en members, have been cut off from supplies and the outside world as a result of an illegal blockade. We wrote to the minister about this deteriorating situation nearly three weeks ago. And yesterday, the minister seemed to throw in the towel on ending the blockade by saying, and I quote, unfortunately, despite our government's best efforts, these initiatives have not been successful, end quote. That's simply not acceptable. We're now on day 53 of the blockade, day 53. What is the minister specifically going to do to ensure that the safety and well-being of workers, more than 500 of them, who are currently trapped behind an illegal blockade? Minister. Thank, <coughs> thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, obviously, uh, an illegal blockade uh, is not acceptable. Uh, and we are working very closely in terms of uh, dealing with CGL and the situation for those workers behind those blockade lines, at the same time being in regular contact with the, the RCMP uh, in terms of ensuring that as much as possible we can get this situation resolved and de-escalated in a way that uh, reduces the potential uh, for conflict, which I don't think anybody wants to see. Leader of the Official Opposition, Supplemental. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Of course, no one wants to see a conflict, but what we want to make sure of is that more than 500 people who are trapped behind an illegal blockade are actually cared for. Let's be clear, this is a political standoff, and there are more than 500 workers caught in the crosshairs. There is no way to get supplies in and no way for workers to leave. Supplies will run out in the next several days. And if there is a medical emergency, the illegal blockade puts health and safety of more than 500 workers at risk. These are public roads that are being blocked. There is significant concern about the safety and well-being of more than 500 workers trapped behind an illegal blockade. The company, as the minister well knows, has approvals from the province and support from all 20 elected councils along the route. And he also knows that there is an enforceable BC Supreme Court injunction in place which allows work to continue. So today, as we sit here, there are more than 500 workers trapped. There is a risk of not being able to get supplies in, and if there is a medical emergency, help will not be there. So to the minister, exactly what is his plan to deal with the necessity of providing goods and medical uh, provisions for the workers that are trapped behind the blockade? Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the member for the question. And obviously, we are very concerned about the situation at the, uh, the camp. Uh, we have been in contact uh, with uh, CGL. We have been in contact with the RCMP. Uh, we are aware of the situation in terms of supplies and in terms of how we are able to get or supplies can be gotten into uh, the camp 
uh, as required. Uh, I can tell the, uh, the member in terms of uh, me uh, uh, medical requirements, there is significant medical capacity in that camp at the, at the present time. Uh, but that... You, uh, Members? I, I, I was asked a serious question. I'm giving a serious response. And if you want to chuckle and laugh, uh, I, think that's, I don't think that's appropriate. What I'm telling the, uh, the member who asked the question is we are aware of the situation at the camp. We have been in contact with CGL. Um, we know that there are medical capabilities in that camp. And we will ensuring that if medical assistance is required, that it gets in. Uh, we know that the, uh, the, the, uh, the road is blocked, but there are other, for example, by air that can be used. What we want to see in place is a de-escalation. We have been doing efforts over that over the last number of months to be able to do just that. It is a challenging situation. But I also know that that is the, uh, the best way at this point to resolve it. Uh, and that's what we're working to do. Member for Nechako Lakes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 53 days of this blockade, but this has been building over a lot longer. And here's the challenge. The NDP government seems to have different messages for protesters in different regions of the province. In southern BC, the government has supported the elected chiefs who seek employment through forestry. The Premier has consistently urged protesters at Ferry Creek to go home. In the north, the Premier has not supported the elected chiefs and councils. In fact, two cabinet ministers and a former minister have worked hard to ensure that protesters are welcome and supported. So can the Minister of Indigenous Relations explain why the wishes of the elected chiefs in northern BC are dismissed by the province? Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the member for his question. I think it is unfair to characterize our position in that way. We, I have met uh, on several occasions with elected leaders of the Wet'suwet'en Nation, but of course we're also dealing with those people, the hereditary chiefs, who brought the Delgamuk-Gesteway case to the Supreme Court of Canada almost a generation ago. That work, that ongoing dialogue has never happened as the court commanded governments of the day to do, and we are now doing that. We are working with the proper rights and title holders according to the Wet'suwet'en people. We will continue to do that. As regards the specific controversy that the member alludes to, we are not treating protesters differently in one part of the province as against another. The fact is, I have been to a meeting with the uh, clan leader of the, of the Gitmunden clan. I have a call today with the CGL leaders. I have met with uh, the elders in the territory as recently as a couple of months ago at the same time meeting with elected uh, leaders as well. We will continue, as the minister said, to find a way to de-escalate this conflict, to try to find a way to do what we should have done a generation ago and finally find a resolution to the land question in the Northwest. Member has supplemental. <laughs> Member. Thank you. Well, this long process that has started uh, some time ago is cold comfort to over 500 people who are under siege, who are trapped, who are worried. I mean, let's, let's be clear here. It's been well documented that equipment has been stolen, equipment has been vandalized, roads, of course, are now blocked, and over 500 workers are being not only under siege, but they're being threatened. People are yelling in their faces, 
and they're running out of supplies. And what has the government's response been to this situation over the years? This government's response has been to provide the leadership of the protesters $7 million and to have the current and past ministers <coughs> standing with these protesters. And there is a difference between how it's treated in the North and how it's treated in the South. In his own writing, the Premier was clear to the protesters to leave and listen to the requests of the local nations. Move along was the direction that was given to the protesters at Ferry Creek. But when it comes to the 20 elected bands that have given support for Coastal Athletic, some of them who, some of the members who are behind these picket lines, or these protest lines, I should say, um, the province has taken a very different tact. They've ignored those elected chiefs. So once again, to this government, and perhaps the, uh, the Minister for uh, State for uh, uh, Land and Natural Resource Operations um, maybe, have, maybe wants to chime in because some of these people are chiefs in his riding. Can they explain why the opinions of the elected chiefs in Northern BC are being ignored? Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It is absolutely true that we have provided revenue to the Wet'suwet'en leaders in order to achieve unity. The speech that I give to the elected leaders is the same speech that I give to the hereditary chiefs. I did that in late uh, August and September when I was in the territory. I said that we need to find unity amongst Wet'suwet'en if we're ever going to solve this issue. After all, Mr. Speaker, it was the hereditary chiefs who went to the Supreme Court of Canada in the Delgamukka-Stayway case. It is they who have the rights and title. The elected chiefs are very much part of the solution. They have pipeline benefit agreements. They have other revenue sharing in the territory. That is true, and we honour that participation. But the truth is we are trying to achieve unity in the way I've described. There's no way that we're treating them differently in the north and the south. It's simply not factual. We are trying very much to solve this uh, controversy. There is no excuse for vandalism or theft. This is a project that has the permit. It's a, a project that has the right to proceed. There is no way, Mr. Speaker, that we condone that in any way, shape, or form. But to suggest that we are somehow ignoring the elected leaders is simply not factually true. Leader of the third party. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And, and honestly, it, it's, it's disorienting in the wake of what will probably be one of the most costly storms in terms of infrastructure in BC's history, driven by climate change, that we are in here with two parties, the government and the official opposition, trying to outdo each other about how we're going to get more fossil fuel infrastructure built in this province, fossil fuel infrastructure heavily subsidized by this government. Over the last 36 hours, BC has experienced record-setting weather events complete with mudslides, mass evacuations, which are underway today still, and collapsed infrastructure. Vancouver is cut off from the rest of the country by road right now. We are deeply grateful to staff and leadership of local governments and First Nations across the province who did everything they could to save lives and infrastructures infrastructure and situations that became worse by the hour. The Minister of Public Safety has said that the responsibility for preparedness and emergency response largely falls on local governments. In fact, he said it six times. 
But this weather affected the entire province, and this provincial government is responsible for provincial highways. The Coquihalla is impassable and might be for months. The Malahat and Highway 7 turned into rivers. There are currently no access in or out of the Lower Mainland. In regional districts, which account for the vast majority of land in BC, roads and highways are under provincial jurisdiction. And when we have climate events that are going to impact huge swaths of the province, the provincial government needs to play a proactive role in emergency preparation and response through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Minister of Public Safety. Were we hurt? We were hurt. Were we hit by this storm worse than expected? Or is our emergency preparation system flawed? Minister of Public Safety. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Honourable Speaker. And I thank the member for the question. And I'd like to start by uh, acknowledging that she recognized the, uh, the amazing work done at the local government level uh, and, um, and, and communities uh, in different parts of the province. But I noticed she forgot the, uh, the amazing work done by the members of Emergency Management BC, Honourable Speaker. And I think they need to be acknowledged. and the work done by the contractors and the highway personnel in this province who work day and night during appalling conditions, the work done by uh, search and rescue uh, volunteers out of, uh, in communities across our province and out of uh, Comox. But I'll also tell the, the member this, is that we recognize that climate change is playing a fundamental role in the challenges that we are facing in the disasters and the emergencies that are facing us. That's why we've undertaken significant work in terms of reforming and overhauling the Emergency Protection Act, being the first province in this country to sign up to the Sendai framework. So it's not just about recovery. It's about prevention, mitigation, response, and recovery, the four key pillars. All of those are part and parcel of the work that's underway to recognize the role that climate change is underway in terms of how we deal with emergencies in this province. And we are going to continue on that work, Honourable Speaker, and I look forward to her support of that incredible legislation when it's tabled in this House. Leader of the Third Party, supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And we've had a lot of opportunities this year to test how prepared we are for these emergencies. We've had a heat dome, a record-setting wildfire season, a bomb cyclone, a localized tornado, and now severe flooding and infrastructure collapse across the province because of record-setting rainfall. The Alberta government told people to stay home on the weekend in response to this incoming weather system. On Friday, Washington State issued flood warnings and distributed free sandbags in counties forecasted to be heavily impacted. They were proactive and they minimized loss. And yes, I acknowledge absolutely the incredible work of EMBC, of search and rescue, of road crews. And yes, this absolutely is climate change. But the proactive response from this government that we saw to climate change in the last government was to invest $6 billion of taxpayer money into more fossil fuel infrastructure. This past year has been a reckoning, and we need serious natural and built infrastructure plans to adapt to the effects of climate change. The plan must be led by the province. It must be proactive. 
And through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Minister of Public Safety, Solicitor General, having assigned on to the Sendai is something, but what we need is for this government to treat climate change like the emergency that it is and create an action plan that matches the scale Question, of the emergency. Minister of Public Safety. Thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the, uh, the member for the question. Uh, and an action plan is exactly what we're doing by overhauling the Emergency Program Act, which is the first time that it's been done since the early 90s when it was put in place. And it means that fundamental principle of the Sendai framework in how you approach uh, disaster management, as I said, on the four key, on the four key pillars. That's the fundamental uh, uh, foundation. At the same time, it's recognizing that on the ground, local emergencies are dealt with by the local governments and the local communities because they know the situation and the problem spots in their communities. <laughs> the coordination that we have seen between the province and local government, I am always amazed at how remarkable it is. I watched this morning as uh, in Abbotsford, the mayor and the council and first responders worked with EMBC to ensure that emergency uh, uh, centers were opened, that evacuation orders were put in place, and that people were evacuated. I've watched it as emergency centers were opened and put in supports in place. It starts at the local level. It works with the province and then goes up to the federal government. This province has been working, this government's been working on a long-term plan that is being implemented, Honourable Speaker. We're going to continue that work to ensure that we've got the most robust response possible that recognizes that climate change is clearly a driving factor. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Documents obtained under Freedom of Information reveal that the NDP government has made an ideological decision to demolish private child care providers in British Columbia. Private child care providers in British Columbia. Last fall, the Priorities and Accountabilities Cabinet Committee directed the elimination of grants for private providers. And on May 21, 2021, the Minister of State for Child Care approved a recommendation to, and I quote, discontinue privately owned facility development in the new spaces fund do not create any additional incentive programs, end quote. So can the Minister of State tell private child care providers and their families why she is actively dismantling these centres that families rely on to get to work? Minister of State for Child Care. Thank you so much, Honourable Speaker, and I thank the member opposite for the question. We know that parents in this province have been struggling to find affordable, high-quality childcare for many, many years, and that is why since 2017, we have started a comprehensive childcare BC plan to support families, to support providers, and also to ensure that early childhood educators are properly compensated and supported throughout this province. And I hope the member opposite has read our childcare plan that we've increased funding significantly, significantly to members. all types of childcare providers, including nonprofit, for-profit, government-owned, indigenous communities. That Order. is true.
Order, members. <laughs> members, come to order. And if the member opposite has not read our child care plan, I can provide a few examples of how we've been supporting for-profit child care providers, along with many other providers, through our increased funding to maintain their spaces, through our operating grant, through wage enhancement, and through measures to lower parent fees for those child care providers, including startup fundings to create many, many more spaces that are historical throughout this province. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. Member for West Vancouver, supplemental. Mr. Speaker, I must say I'm quite confused by that answer. Um, the, members, the, members the minister, listen to the question, please. Perhaps the minister has not read her own decision note. What the minister has just said, what the minister has just said is that there has been lots of investment and will continue to be lots of investment in Please continue. I believe the other side of the House is not listening to what I am saying, or they would not be applauding this, Mr. Speaker. Um, I was just, we just heard the minister say investment in private child care is something that this government is doing, and yet this decision note, this decision note is the opposite. Mr. Speaker, Members. Mr. Speaker, these documents make it clear that this NDP government has made an ideological choice to make it cost prohibitive for child, child, uh, private child care providers to continue operating. We are talking about half of the child care spaces in this province that are largely run, Mr. Speaker, by women entrepreneurs and small independent businesses. The minister's intention, or the minister's decision intended, and I quote from her, uh, from her decision note, signal government's move away from market-based childcare, recognizing it may be cost prohibitive for for-profit providers to remain in the sector, end quote. So why did the minister sign off on a plan to dismantle 60,000 childcare spaces that families across the province rely on? Minister of State for Childcare. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and let me set the record straight. During the past four years, and since we started our Childcare BC Plan in 2018, we have supported the fastest space creation in BC's history. Shall we continue? And if the member Minister. opposite is confused, let me give her the real numbers that we have supported the creation of over 26,000 spaces, which is four, five times more than the member opposite ever created when they were in government for 16 long years. Wants access 
to childcare. So we have been working really hard to find every opportunity possible, and we have learned so much from the past four years of our Childcare BC plan and through the Canada-wide agreement. One thing that we've done with the federal government is to know that we need to focus on creating childcare spaces that could be long-term community assets. But at the same time, Thank while you. we are focused on supporting public nonprofit spaces, our startup grant continues to support small business owners, family childcare to create more spaces while the other side of the house voted against our plan every step of the way. Member for Camelot, South Thompson. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Well, to, to the, the, the minister, uh, with all due respect, you don't improve access to childcare by blowing up 60,000 spaces in the private system. And, 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 and thank, thank goodness for, for FOI. That's the only way. That's the only way that we've been able to learn of the minister's uh, decision to, to, to eliminate 60,000 uh, spaces, uh, childcare spaces across British Columbia. And let's be clear: uh, these FOI documents, these FOI documents. This one's uh, it's called the Ministry of Children and Family Development Decision Note, dated May 21st, 2021. It's signed by the minister Let's responsible the question, for, for, uh, for child care. This, this uh, decision note uh, it clearly shows that the NDP, the NDP uh, made a secret ideological decision to drive independent child care providers who are responsible for almost 50% of all child care spaces in this province to drive them out of business. Mr. Speaker, that's on page two of this uh, decision note. These FOI documents uh, say the NDP's changes for independent childcare uh, providers will be, and I quote, making these spaces unavailable in the medium term, end quote. The question to the minister is this. Why did the minister make the decision to dismantle 60,000 childcare spaces that families across British Columbia count on every single day? Minister of State for Childcare. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. While it is encouraging to hear the member opposite talking about childcare, let me remind them they've ignored the childcare crisis for 16 long years with lack of investment, hurting our local businesses. The member opposite were the ones who has ignored the childcare crisis, left lots of childcare providers and early childhood educators struggling with low wages, lack of support, and not being able to maintain their spaces. Ever since we started our Childcare BC plan, we have increased funding for Members. all childcare providers, including non-profit, for-profit, indigenous government-owned providers, no side commentary, please. startup funding, funding to maintain their spaces. And we are continuing this work, Honourable Speaker. We're continuing to create childcare spaces that will become long-term community assets. We know and we've learned so much since day one of our Childcare BC plan that we're underway to make sure we know that public dollars needs to go into high-quality childcare spaces that can be long-term community assets. And let me give the member opposite an example. Even the member opposite is writing along in Kamloops, the two Kamloops, North Thompson and South Thompson writing, we have invested over $40 million into their Members, 
Order. Campbell South Thompson Supplemental. Well, well, thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. I, I'm holding the document in my hands here. Page seven. Page seven. Page seven. It's signed by the minister responsible for childcare, and the recommendation says, and I quote, "Discontinue for-profit eligibility for the new spaces fund. Do not create any additional incentive programs." End quote. That's on page seven of the minister's document, Mr. Speaker. This this document is crystal clear, and I quote, over the last three years, growth in the childcare sector has been led by for-profit providers, with both the number of for-profit providers and the spaces they deliver outstripping not-for-profit and family providers starting in 2017-2018, end quote. That's on page two of the minister's uh, FOI decision note. According uh, to, to this document, Independently owned childcare spaces have been steadily increasing since 2003. And page three of this FOI decision note says that 83.7% of operational spaces created since 2017 are operated by private childcare providers. Wow. Private. Wow. You're going to private childcare down. providers. But astoundingly, astoundingly members, this very same document your own recommends blowing up 60,000 private uh, spaces. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, this decision is breathtaking in the impact that it's going to have on families across British Columbia. Yes. Why, would, why would the minister sign off on a strategy to dismantle 60,000 childcare spaces in communities all over uh, the province of British Columbia. And what does she have to say to all of those families who are going to be devastated by this decision as outlined in her signed decision note? Minister of State for Childcare. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. And if the member opposite did not hear me, let me say it again. We have been accelerating the creation of childcare spaces in this province, which is the fastest Members. ever in PCC Street, which is five more times more than they ever did in 16 long years. providers Members. to operating grants, to wage enhancement, to start-up funding, and we know that now, because we're going into the fourth year of our child care plan, we need to make sure that we focus on child care spaces that can become long-term community assets that will benefit generations to come. And we're going to continue to support the creation of child care spaces. And I know the member opposite were heckling about the work that we've been doing, but we have invested $2.3 billion into the child care sector, which is historical. Members, let's listen to the answer, we've please. We've been supporting and creating the 26,000 spaces we funded. Let me just end with a quote from the member opposite. This is from a quote from the city of Prince George. When they were talking about the child care assessment that happened in 2015, this was someone from Prince George who said at the time there wasn't enough money available during the members' time in government to help create spaces that were required for childcare. But the environment now is very different in 2019 because, thankfully, now we know there's funding available to help to create spaces. And this is from the Prince George Social Planner. 